Okay. All right, brothers and sisters, praises be to our loving Father that we are gathered once again. So we're going to continue the uh, studies on the book of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, if you still remember, last week we talked about the calendar, but before that we began with, the ch with chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. And we know during chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, it was time for Yahuwah's people to be moved into prayer, to confess their sins to Abba, and to ask for supplications or requests from Abba. And the reason why is because it was about the time for Yahuwah to fulfill his promise to engage and to begin the 70 weeks plan that was unveiled to Daniel during that time in Daniel chapter 9. So we're going to continue today and look at how this is going to pan out. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 and the verses 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression uh, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so after Daniel praised to Yahuwah Abba, because he knew that the 70-year period of desolation in Babylon was about to come to an end, and Yahuwah will now fulfill his promise, Yahuwah reveals to Daniel through the prophet, through the angel Gabriel, I should say, the plan of Yahuwah for the people of Daniel, the people of Israel, and for his holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And so we call this the 70-week plan for Israel that Yahuwah Abba has decreed for his people. So it includes the following six items. Number one, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And so this is the plan that Yahuwah has for his people, the people of Israel. And what we will discover is that this plan, which encompasses one all the way to number six, will end and have its final complete uh, fulfillment during the millennial reign of the kingdom of God here on earth to be led by his son, serving as king, king and Mashiach, Yahushua. And so this is the 70 weeks plan for the people of Israel. However, when we studied in our previous episode, the weeks mentioned in the prophecy, we know it is a heptad, so it's seven years. So 70 weeks means 70 sevens or 70 sets of seven years. And so what we have is 70 times seven equals 490 years. And so what we actually have is Yahuwah's 490 year plan for his people, Israel. And so we're going to look at this plan because this plan that we can see here from one all the way to six is basically the work of restoration. And when it comes to restoration, we need to pay attention because it applies to us because we are on the verge of receiving salvation from Yahuwah Elohim. So we need to know the patterns of restoration. And so we begin by understanding that this situation that Daniel has found himself in is the result of captivity, right? And so the captivity of the people of Israel is the punishment of Yahuwah Abba to his people Israel. However, Yahuwah does not give up on his people. He will begin to restore his people again. But it begins with a remnant. There's going to be a remnant from the captives of Judah who is going to be the instruments to bring about restoration. And what also is included in this work and pattern of restoration in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And so this is the detail of the plan. Remember, the plan is to restore the people of Israel. How will this plan be fulfilled? Yahuwah gives a detailed plan. And this plan is cast in prophecy that begins in Daniel 
9.25. And so if it's a prophecy, it's a promise. It will be fulfilled by Yahuwah. And so one of the patterns of restoration is it must come with a prophecy or a promise. No promise, no hope, right? And so we know the people of Israel during the days of Daniel received a promise. And so the pattern of restoration begins with a remnant. Number two, there must be a promise from Yahuwah Elohim. And indeed, the remnant had a promise from Yahuwah. Because there's a promise, guess what? It means we can now devote ourselves in prayer. This is why in our previous episodes, we talked about the confession of Daniel and Nehemiah and the people of Israel. Jeremiah exhorting the remnants among the captives of Israel there in Babylon to devote themselves into prayer. And the prayer included confession and supplication. And you can only really hold on to prayer if there's a promise. Because if there's no promise, then how can we really rely on prayer? If there's a promise, it means it's the will of Abba. Pray for it. And so there was a promise of deliverance. There was a promise of restoration for Israel and for Jerusalem. So they engaged in prayer to Yahuwah Abba. And so that's the plan. Now, what is this plan all about that's cast in prophecy? Let's go back to this prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times this is a prophecy and like many prophecies I believe that Daniel 9:25 is a multiple fulfillment prophecy in other words it has a immediate fulfillment and it also has a far in the future, more complete fulfillment. And Daniel 9.25, I believe, is like that. Why do I believe that? Well, we, there's something we need to understand about the nature of biblical prophecies. And what are they? The book of Hosea, chapter 12, and the verses 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And so when Yahuwah gives a prophecy, he mentions that it involves similitudes, patterns. And what happens to these patterns? They're multiplied. Multiplied visions, similitudes, and patterns. What else is the nature of prophecy? Isaiah 28.10. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. In other words, prophecy is often cast in such a way that you can find meaning in different layers of the prophecy. You can have layers of fulfillment in one prophecy. And so that's one characteristic of prophecies. What else? Ecclesiastes 3 in the verses 15, what is happening now has happened before. And what will happen in the future has happened before because God makes the same things happen over and over again. This is repetition, the repeating of prophecy, the repeating of pattern. So when we look at the nature of biblical prophecies, number one, it uses patterns in multiple, multiple ways. Hosea 12.10. It has layers of meaning and fulfillment. Isaiah 28 verse 10. And it uses repetition of those patterns and multiple fulfillments according to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 15. And so based on that, 925, the book of Daniel, is a prophecy that has many patterns that is used in multiple ways. It has layers of meaning and fulfillment, and it has repetition of patterns and multiple fulfillments. This is why Daniel 9 25 to 27 is one of the most studied prophecies in the whole of scriptures. It's one of the most fascinating prophecies in the whole of scriptures. And so let's go back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 25. Why do I believe it is a prophecy that has multiple fulfillments? Because when you look at this prophecy, it mentions there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? 
Have you ever wondered why the Bible did not just say there shall be 69 weeks, right? Why does it say seven weeks and 62 weeks? Why not just combine it and say seven weeks and 62 weeks? I believe the reason why is because it tells us this prophecy has more than one fulfillment. It has layers of fulfillment. And so we can summarize perhaps this prophecy in this way. It has the seven weeks, which is 49 years, seven sets, right, of years, which means seven times seven, 49 years, which represents the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy. And then we have the seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 times seven. What do you get? 483 years. This represents the more complete fulfillment. And so it begins with an immediate fulfillment, seven years or 49 years. And then it commences and concludes in 483 years with a more complete fulfillment. Now, why do we believe that this is, in fact, what is taking place in the book of Daniel 9, verse 25? By the way, this is not, we're not being dogmatic here. This is just a suggestion that we can test. Okay, let's go ahead and look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. This is, again, the prophecy mentioned. And when you look at the prophecy, the prophecy is about building Jerusalem. You notice that? And it gives us a time frame for building Jerusalem. It's from the going forth of the command until the time that the Messiah, the prince, comes. Now, when we look at this passage, 925, who is the main character of this prophecy? It look, when we look at it, it says, until Messiah, the prince. You notice Messiah, the prince is used. And when we think of Messiah, the prince, who comes to, to our mind? Of course, Yahushua. He is the Messiah. However, when we look at the Hebrew of Daniel 9.25, it doesn't specify capital M, Messiah, and capital P, prince. In the English translation, the translators of, of Daniel 9.25 chose to capitalize M, chose to capitalize P, because according to these translators, the only fulfillment is Mashiach, and as Yahusha is the only fulfillment of this prophecy. However, when we look at the Hebrew, what do we find? In the Hebrew, this is what we find, the, the word Messiah used is Hebrew 4899, which is Mashiach, and Prince, Hebrew 5057, Nagid. Notice in the English translation, it mentions unto the Messiah, right? And the Prince. But when we look at the Hebrew, there is no definite article. There's no the that should be translated in English. Because when you look at the Hebrew, right? You notice there's no definite article. How do we know if there's a definite article in the Hebrew? If there is a he as a prefix. In this case, there is no he added to the prefix as a prefix. Therefore, there's no definite article. And so instead of translating it unto the Messiah, it should be unto a Messiah. And if it says on the prince, instead of the prince, it should be a prince. Do you see the difference? It's like when we say a messenger and the messenger. And so the Hebrew does not specify only Mashiach, Yahushua. What the Bible is telling us in Daniel 9.25, it's a anointed one and a prince. And so it is general. This is why it can possibly have multiple fulfillments because it doesn't specify the Messiah or the anointed one. What does it mean for one to be Messiah or Messiah, Hebrew 4899? When we look at the Hebrew word for that, it simply means anointed or anointed one. It can refer to the Messiah. It can refer to the king, the high priest, uh, the, even Cyrus. It can refer to patriarchs because the word anointed simply means one who is consecrated, set apart, for specific use that Yahuwah has for the person who has been anointed. So anointed basically means appointed by Yahuwah to carry out a specific task. For example, in Isaiah 
45 verse 1, Yahuwah says that he has an anointed. Who is that anointed? Cyrus. Because Yahuwah is going to use Cyrus in a specific way. When we look at the Hebrew of anointed, it's the same word, Mashiach. And so Cyrus is called Mashiach because Mashiach simply means anointed one. And so Yahuwah is going to use Cyrus. And because he's going to use Cyrus, it means he has been appointed or anointed, set apart, consecrated for that specific use. And so in Daniel 9.25, it does mention anointed one, but it doesn't have to specify just the Mashiach Yahusha, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It also mentions he is the prince, right? What is the meaning of the word prince? It's the Hebrew Nagid, Hebrew 5057. And what does it mean? In Hebrew, it simply means leader, ruler, captain, or prince, like a governor. So a governor is considered a prince, Nagid. And so when we look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and we read until Messiah the prince, it should not be until Messiah the prince. It should be until a Messiah or an anointed one, a prince. It's the capital M and the capital P should not be there because in Hebrew, there are no capital or small case letters, right? It's just one script. And so the translators into English who translated this in English, I should say, they use capital M, capital P, because they believe it is Mashiach. I believe the complete fulfillment, the more complete fulfillment of this prophecy is indeed Mashiach, Yahushua. However, I also believe there's an initial fulfillment by an anointed one or anointed ones to carry out the purpose of this prophecy. This is why we have the division. It is seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? And so in the first the initial fulfillment of this prophecy, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, we believe that this is going to require an anointed prince, one set apart, a prince or governor who has been set apart. Who could that be? Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Arthur Xerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, uh, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. So who could possibly fulfill the role and be the fulfillment in the immediate future of Daniel 9.25? It could be Nehemiah. And we talked previously about Nehemiah who prayed the same prayer as Daniel, the prayer of confession, the prayer of supplication. And he was appointed by Yahuwah to lead the group of people to be restored in Jerusalem. So I believe Nehemiah was an appointed leader or governor who was anointed to carry out the purpose of rebuilding Jerusalem, because that's what it says in the prophecy, to build Jerusalem. And so there's going to be a leader who will be instrumental in carrying out this work of rebuilding Jerusalem, because Israel needs an infrastructure. That infrastructure comes not just by building the temple, but also the streets, the walls, and Jerusalem itself. And so the one who is instrumental would be Nehemiah. And when will Nehemiah do this? Well, he will begin and he will appear as the governor at the time of the command, the going forth of the command. That's when the seven weeks begins to tick down, to, 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 to tick, right? And so we have seven weeks, the immediate fulfillment, I believe fulfilled by Nehemiah, seven weeks and 62 weeks or 483 years to be fulfilled by Mashiach. And we're going to go over both of these different layers of prophecies uh, in the next two episodes of this uh, topic. So let's begin with Nehemiah. We believe Nehemiah is the one who has been assigned to lead the building of Jerusalem. 
And so he is, in fact, the appointed governor. And according to the prophecy, there's 49 years from the time the command is issued up until the time he is prince or appointed governor. So let's go ahead and test this. Because if, it's, if it is a fulfillment of Daniel 9.25 in the immediate future, from the time Daniel gave this prophecy, then it should pass the testing of uh, this prophecy. We should test it with looking at how long it took from the giving of the command to the coming of uh, Nehemiah as governor. So what command is the one specified here? Because that's the beginning of our counting, right? From the beginning of the command up until he becomes governor, it should be 49 years. So let's go ahead and test that. Daniel chapter 9, 1 down to 2. What is this command mentioned by the book of Daniel? 9, 1 to 2 in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, the number of years specified by the word of Yahuwah through Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So according to Daniel 9, 1 to 2, the command mentioned that is going to go forth is really the command of Yahuwah. Yahuwah has a decree about what's going to happen to the people of Israel. It was Yahuwah who decreed uh, Israel to be held captive in Babylon in the first place. And for how long are they going to be held captive? 70 years, right? So 70 years is what was been appointed according to the decree or command of Yahuwah. This is why when Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, he understood it was time to make preparation to go back to Jerusalem. Because there's a decree that Yahuwah has made, that, and that decree is going to be fulfilled soon. And when will this begin? After 70 years from the time of desolation. You know what the word desolation means? The word desolation basically means the absence of people. And so Jerusalem is going to be conquered, but there's still people there. Eventually, they're going to be destroyed and conquered. And the people will be taken to a different place, to Babylon. It's called deportation. There were numerous deportations from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so there were different sets of deportations. And so what we're speaking about here, the countdown begins when all of the people of Israel have been deported to Jerusalem. So that's the countdown. After seven years from the time of the desolation of Jerusalem, Yahuwah has a decree. And what is that decree? In Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says Yahuwah. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So after the finishing of the 70 years, what will happen? Yahuwah, according to his decree, is going to punish Babylon. What else is the decree of Yahuwah after the 70 years are over? Jeremiah 29, 1 to 10. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away Captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Well, thus says Yahuwah, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. What also has been commanded or decreed by Yahuwah Abba after the 70 years are finished from the desolations of Jerusalem. Bible says, not only will Babylon be punished, but Yahuwah's people will return to Jerusalem. And the, the decree even specifies who will punish Babylon. And who will punish Babylon? Bible says, the kingdom of Persia. And so we have here in the decree of Yahuwah, 
not only the length of captivity, but also what will happen after that period of time finishes. After the 70 years, what's gonna happen is Babylon will be punished by Persia, but it doesn't finish there. The Bible even specifies according to Yahuwah's decree, Yahuwah's command, he even specifies the person who will lead this uh, punishing of the Babylonians. In the book of Isaiah 45, 1 and 13, thus says Yahuwah to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, right? And let my exiles go free, not for price, no reward, says Yahuwah of hosts. So included in that decree that Yahuwah has made is the people rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. What else? Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And so according to the decree and command of Yahuwah, after the 70 years have been completed, what will happen next? Well, Cyrus will punish Babylon and the people of Israel are going to go back to Jerusalem. The temple will be rebuilt as well as the city of Jerusalem. And so that's the decree that was mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 and the verse is 25. And so now we have a date, a time marker by which we can compute the 49 years. And so we know that after the desolations of Jerusalem, 70 years later, that's what we need to identify, that timestamp. And so we need to first ask, according to historians, when was Israel conquered by Babylon? Let's read here from the uh, Babylonian clay tablet. The Jerus Jerusalem fall of the city, rise of a vision, according to jerusalem.nottingham.ac.uk. The first time this happened, the Babylonians besieged the city and deported its king, Jehoachin, along with a number of other members of the court, including the priest Ezekiel. This was in 597 BC. The Babylonians then replaced Jehoachin with one of his relatives, Zedekiah, in the hope that he would prove a more pliable and more loyal ruler. Unfortunately for the city, he also broke his oath of allegiance. This prompted another siege beginning in 588 BC and culminating in the fall of the city in 586 BC. This time, the Babylonians were ruthless in their punishment. They killed or deported many of the city's inhabitants, destroyed much of the city, and burned the temple. So according to history books and history records, including this Babylonian clay tablet, we know that the Babylonians laid siege of Jerusalem several times. They first conquered it back in five, in, actually back in 605 BC. That's when they first conquered people of Israel. And then they took over the kings and installed a vassal king. But instead of being loyal to Babylon, they were conniving together with Assyria and so the king of Babylon got very upset. So what did he do? He went back to Jerusalem and destroyed the city. And again, went back in 586 BC. This is the final destruction of Jerusalem. And at this point, the final deportations were taking place. And so we know in 586 BC, that's the beginning of the end of Jerusalem. And so after being destroyed, 586, it takes some time to bring all the people from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's not going to happen in an instant. So let's give or take a year. And so 585 BC would be a good time, probably, right? 585 BC would be a good time for the date, a timestamp for when there was desolation in Jerusalem, because all the Israelites were taken from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. And so according to the prophecy, this should take 49 years. So from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until this appointed governor is how long? 49 
years. And so from the going forth of the command, which is 70 years after the desolation of Jerusalem, until the anointed leader or governor, Nehemiah, who is appointed, appointed as governor, the duration should be 49 years. Let's go ahead and test this, see if it passes. So according to the history records, Babylon conquered Jerusalem once and for all in 586 BC, give, it, give or take a year for the deportation to be completed so that Jerusalem becomes a desolation, that will be 585 BC. And then 585 minus 70 years, because it's gonna happen 70 years, that's when the decree will kick in. How long is that? Um, what's the date for that? Five, seven, uh, 585 minus 70, what do you get? 15, 515, right? And so go, the going forth of the command, is 515 BC until the anointed leader. And so now we need to determine the date for when Nehemiah became governor. Do we have a date for that? Well, let's turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter five in the verses 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. And so does the Bible give us when? Does it give us a timestamp of when Nehemiah became governor? Does it? Yeah. When did he become governor? Bible says from the 20th year of King Arthaxerxes to the 32nd year, he became governor of Judea, okay, or in the land of Judah. So we now have a timestamp. Now let's compare the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 5.14 with Nehemiah 2.1-2 because there's actually a difference, something that we need to understand. Because in Nehemiah chapter 2, 1-2, Nehemiah says the following, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. And so this is Nehemiah chapter two, one down to two. And again, it mentions the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. There is confusion when it comes to the sequencing of events that concern Nehemiah chapter two and Nehemiah chapter five, which we read earlier. Which event came first? This event actually came after Nehemiah chapter 5 and the verses 14, because there are different ways that the numbering of Arthaxerxes is reckoned. According to biblical scholars, for example, Leslie McFall, in, his, in her article, uh, was Nehemiah contemporary with Ezra in 458 BC? This is what she found when she looked at the, the Holy Scriptures. Clearly, we have two systems of reckoning in these statements, in which one period, namely from 20th to the 32nd of Artaxerxes, from Nehemiah 5.14, which we read, uh, preceded another period, which commenced in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, which is in Nehemiah 2 verse 1. The solution is quite simple. One is a dynastic reckoning, and the other is a soul reign reckoning. What's the difference between a dynastic and a soul reign reckoning? What does a dynasty mean? It means rulership from just one family, generation after generation. See, Arthaxerxes was the son of Xerxes. Xerxes began the dynasty. And so sometimes in the Holy Bible, the reckoning begins with the originator of the dynasty, which would be Xerxes. That's called dynastic reckoning. Sometimes the Bible just mentions the soul reign reckoning, which means specifically from Arthaxerxes and not Xerxes. So we have two different reckonings, two different computations when it mentions the 20th year of Arthaxerxes. And so according to this researcher, thus in, in, in Nehemiah 5.14 and Nehemiah 13.6, Nehemiah's first visit has been dated according to the dynastic reckoning, whereas in 2.1, Nehemiah 2.1, 1, 
His second visit has been dated according to the soul reign reckoning of Artha Circe. So when it comes to sequence, the event depicted in Nehemiah 5 comes after, before the events depicted in Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 14, it mentions, uh, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artha Circe's, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. And so in this reckoning, when it mentions the 20th year of King Arthur Xerxes, uh, Nehemiah is using the dynastic reckoning. Okay. And so it's actually not the 20th year of Arthur Xerxes. And so when you compute it, according to Leslie McFall, we go back to the article, the dynastic reckoning is dated from the commencement of Xerxes' reign. If the reigns of Xerxes and his son, Arthur Xerxes, are counted as one reign and the years numbered consecutively from the first year of Xerxes, so the count is actually from the first year of Xerxes, not Arthur Xerxes, because it's a dynastic reckoning, it will be found that the period from the 20th to the 32nd year falls mainly within Arthur Xerxes' reign from 466 to 454 BC. And so what we find is that Nehemiah became governor at four, during, the, during the year 466 BC, okay? And so now we have a date for when he became governor. And so we know the going forth of the command began after 70 years was over from the desolations of Jerusalem. And that was about 515 BC, right? And until the anointed leader, and we know he was anointed, he became governor at 466 BC. And so if we compute uh, 515 minus 466, does it compute to 49 years? I believe it does, unless my math is incorrect. Okay, and so, so according to the uh, biblical record, and if we juxtapose that with the historical record, there's a match, right? Indeed, Nehemiah became governor at the appointed time to be an instrument in doing what? Building Jerusalem. However, the Bible also mentions that this will be done during troublesome times. So what does it mean that this will be done during troublesome times? And so during the second visit of Nehemiah, what did he notice? Nehemiah, one, one, two, three, the words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who were left from, kept from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so here's Nehemiah, and he's receiving report from his brother concerning the situation in Jerusalem. Because at this point, Ezra went ahead of Nehemiah. He was already there leading the other captives, the remnants, in rebuilding the temple. However, according to this report, the survivors of the remnants who were there in Jerusalem, they weren't doing so well. Why? Because there was great opposition. They had so many enemies. And so they were in great distress. And so there was no wall. There was no city of Jerusalem. And so he was very upset. And so that's why he went to Arthur Xerxes a second time. This time he was given the task to go back to Jerusalem. And when he went back to Jerusalem a second time, what was he able to do? Nehemiah 6, 15, 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it. And all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. And so when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, he was able to finish the wall in the 
the finishing of the streets of Jerusalem, despite the enemy. So the troubling times, that was fulfilled. The building of the walls, that was fulfilled. The appearance of Nehemiah as governor in 49 years after the command, that was fulfilled. And so when we look at the patterns of restoration, there is a need to rebuild infrastructure. Now, what do we mean by infrastructure? This is the physical structures needed for the people of God to carry out the works, right? And so what do they need? The temple, it was already rebuilt. What else? The walls for protection. What else? The gates, right? The infrastructure is needed so that restoration can be completed. And this was fulfilled with the help of Nehemiah, who was governor in Judea during the time when the Jerusalem was being rebuilt. However, it's not just building Jerusalem that this prophecy is all about. You notice that? What also is supposed to take place? Not just the building of Jerusalem. The Bible says that from the going forth of the command to restore, right? To restore and build Jerusalem. And so first step in restoration is to build the infrastructure. But now you have to complete it. That's restoration. Restoration includes not just the infrastructure, but also everything else that's needed so that the people of Israel can again be the people of Yehoabah, okay? So there's need for further development, for restoration to take place. And so what also, besides the building of the walls, the gates, the streets, and the temple, what also was needed for restoration to take place? Nehemiah 7, this is what it says. Then it was when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, and my God put into my heart to gather, to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I have found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And so to complete restoration, it wasn't enough to just build a structure, right? The infrastructure, the temple, the wall, the street, the gates, what also needs to take place. You have to also build the people. And so what did Jeremiah do? What did Jeremiah do? He looked at the records. He looked at the remnants and he gathered the remnants and designated them according to their gifts. Some were Levites, some were gatekeepers, some were priests, and some were singers. And so he was organizing the people, not just the infrastructure, but also the people according to their spiritual gifts. And so that's part of restoration. Not only was there a rebuilding of the infrastructure, there was also identifying, looking at the records, looking at the registration, and gathering of the remnant, bringing the people together. That was part of the work of restoration. But that's not all. What also needed to happen to complete restoration? Let's read Ezra 7, 6, and 11. Ezra was a scholar with a thorough knowledge of the law, which Yahuwah, the God of Israel, had given to Moses because Ezra had the blessing of Yahuwah is gone. The emperor gave him everything he asked for. In the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra set out from Babylonia for Jerusalem with a group of Israelites, which included priests, Levites, temple musicians, temple guards, and workers. Ezra had devoted his life to studying the law of Yahuwah, to practicing it and teaching all its laws and regulations to the people of Israel. Emperor Artaxerxes gave the following document to Ezra, the priest and scholar, who had a thorough knowledge of the laws and commands which Yahuwah had given to Israel. And so what was an important part of restoration? The teaching of the laws of Yahuwah Abba, the commandments of Yahuwah Abba. And so this was 
an integral part of Yahuwah's work of restoration. This is why Yahuwah appointed Ezra to be a teacher of the law. Nehemiah could not do that. He served a different purpose. But Ezra, he could do that because he was a scribe and he studied the law. And so Yahuwah appointed him to be the teacher of the Torah. And so this was part of the work of restoration. And of course, included in the teaching of the Torah was upholding what? Let's go to Nehemiah because Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. They worked together in the restoration of the people of Israel. And Nehemiah 13, 21, 22. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you, do, if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. So according to Nehemiah, he enforced the Sabbath, which was forgotten by the people of Israel as part of restoring or bringing the people back to Torah, to the law of Yahuwah, which is specifically the Ten Commandments. So this was part of the pattern of restoration. Number six, not only were the people gathered, there was a return, an enforcement of the laws and commandments of Yahuwah Allahim. But it doesn't end there. What also was included in this pattern of restoration, Nehemiah 8, 1 down to 3. Now all the people gathered together as one man, the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahuwah had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women, those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And so in this process of restoration, what was included? You notice that the people of Israel, the remnants of the people of Israel, they gathered together as one man. In other words, there was no forcing people to gather together out of their own volition, right? There was no threats or condemnation. It was a steering in the heart. Who do you think was behind that? Who do you think was behind the people gathering in the water gate? It was Yahuwah. Because Yahuwah was bringing his people together. Yes, they were but a remnant. But Yahuwah was bringing them together as though they were one person. And what did they do? They listened to the book of the law. You notice how long this worship service was for? Pretty long time. Because it mentions they read from morning until midday. It was a long worship service. And so what we find here is a gathering. A congregational worship service that was being restored. You notice when they met together for worship. When Yahuwah moved them together for worship. When was that? The first day of the seventh month. Do you remember what that is? The first every seventh month? The day of trumpets. It's a feast. And so Yahuwah moved his people to gather together on a festival day. And they worshiped together reading the book of the law. The commandments of Yahuwah. Abba. And so what we find here as part of the restoration is a congregational worship. Okay. That is according to the appointed times. What are the appointed times? The festivals and the Sabbath. The Sabbath is considered an appointed time. Moedim. And so the people of God in completing that restoration, well, they need to meet together for worship. And so all this happened. It began with a remnant. There was a promise in the prophecy. There were prayers that were made. The rebuilding of the infrastructure was done. The identifying of the small remnant and the gathering of the small the remnant was done. 
and there was a return to the laws of Yahuwah, the Ten Commandments. And there was also a call for congregational worship that was centered around the appointed times, the festivals, and the Sabbath. You see that pattern, right? But it's not finished. There's one more. What was that? Because there was much opposition and there was much lethargy from on the part of the remnants because the remnant who went back to Jerusalem, they weren't really on board with restoration. Their mind was still back in Babylon. Perhaps they had a good time in Babylon. In fact, only a small portion actually went back to Jerusalem. A good portion remained in Babylon because they liked the life in Babylon. But there were those who decided, moved by the heart, moved in their heart to go to Jerusalem. But they were not really zealous. They were not really on board. And so there was something that needed to happen, something that had to be supplied so that the work and pattern of restoration can be completed. What was that? Also contemporaries during the same time period is Zechariah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, the high priest. And what was their role? We know the role of Zechariah. We know the role of Nehemiah. He was instrumental in building the infrastructure. We know the role of Ezra to teach the law of Yahuwah. But there were also others who were included. And so this was depicted in Zechariah. Let's go to Zechariah 4, 1, 2, 3. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking. And there was a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes with the seven lamps. Two olive trees are buying one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And so here's a prophecy from Zechariah. And it mentions two olive trees and the lampstand of solid gold. Does this ring a bell? I want you to keep this in mind because we're going to talk about it next week. Not this week. I'm just bringing this up so that we can establish something now that we can go back to next week. Okay. Zechariah is giving a prophecy about two olive trees. Zechariah 4, 11 to 14. Now, what is the meaning of this? Well, let's read verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And so the two uh, olive trees mentioned in Zechariah is being explained to us here. Who are they? Two anointed ones. And we studied this before. Who are these two anointed ones? What does anointed one mean? Consecrated, set apart for Yahuwah's use for a specific purpose. Who were they? Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judea, before Nehemiah, who was in charge of Judea during the time of the building of the temple, and also Joshua, the high priest. In Hebrew, it actually says Yahusha. But I don't want to use that name Yahusha because it might confuse people. Okay, so I'm just going to use Joshua. That's okay. And so he was the high priest. And so they were the two anointed ones. And according to what is mentioned here, there's also golden oil. Oil. Now, what does that mean? What does that represent? Zechariah 4, 6 to 7. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of Yahuwah to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahuwah of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And so what was that oil representative of? What did it symbolize? It represented the spirit of Yahuwah. Why? Because there was great opposition in the rebuilding of the temple of Yahuwah. Not only on the part of the enemies, but even among the people, even among the remnant of Yahuwah's people, there was opposition when it comes to rebuilding the temple. And so what needed to happen? Yahuwah had to move people by means of his spirit. And so when it comes to obstacles in our way, when it comes to mountains that are in our way, the only way to overcome them is not by human power, but by the spirit of Yahuwah. And so Yahuwah 
is using these two anointed ones, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. And so the spirit of Yahuwah moves the two of them. And when one is moved by the power and spirit of Yahuwah, what can we expect? Verse 10, the people should not think that small beginnings are unimportant. They'll be happy when they see Zerubbabel with tools building the temple. These are the seven eyes of Yahuwah, which look back and forth across the earth. And so the Bible says, even if you have a small beginning, if the, if the spirit of Yahuwah moves you, then the task, the task, according to the promise of Yahuwah, it will be fulfilled. Because as human beings, sometimes we look at the task and we look at ourselves and we say, this is impossible. And you know what? You're right. It is impossible if you rely on human power and human strength. But it is possible if Yahuwah moves us by means of his spirit. And so the temple needed to be rebuilt as part of the building of the infrastructure. It needed to be rebuilt for the restoration to take place. But there was great opposition. So the spirit of Yahuwah was what was needed. And so what was the message of Haggai to these two anointed ones? Haggai 1, 13 and 14. And Haggai, uh, Yahuwah's messenger, spoke Yahuwah's message to the people saying, I am with you, says Yahuwah. And so he has a message for the people. Okay. So Yahuwah steered up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahuwah of hosts, their God. And so what was the spirit of Yahuwah able to do? It was able to move to action, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, and also the remnant of the people of Israel to rebuild the house of Yahuwah or the temple. And so when we look at the patterns of restoration, it began with a remnant, right? But for that remnant to achieve Yahuwah's will, there has to be a promise. And there was a promise. And it was revealed to Daniel. It was recorded in Jeremiah. There was a promise. And so now they can begin to pray for that. You see, when we pray for something, let's make sure it's according to the will of Abba. It's according to the promise of Abba. And so he has a promise, prayers. And so because there's a promise, they began to pray. Daniel prayed. Ezra prayed. Nehemiah prayed. They all prayed to Yahuwah concerning the fulfillment of his promise. And so there was a need for rebuilding the infrastructure. Who were instrumental? Nehemiah, right? Zerubbabel, who was also governor. Who else? Joshua, the high priest. And so the infrastructure was built because Yahuwah's power and spirit moved the people. What else? There's an identifying of the gathering of the remnant. And also a return to Yahuwah's laws and commandments. A worship of the people as a body, as a congregation, following the timeline of the Moedim, appointed times of Yahuwah. And of course, none of this would be possible without the spirit and power of Yahuwah. And so that's the pattern of restoration. And so after all this was prophesied, and after the prayers and the works of Yahuwah's assigned or appointed or anointed once, eventually in 396 BC, according to JewishRoots.net, many crucial events occurred in the history of Israel by 396 BC. The city was rebuilt, the temple established, the canon of the Old Testament was completed. From the close of that time to the advent of John the Baptist, there was no prophet in Israel. Remember when, uh, the Bible, when it says there's like a 400 uh, years of uh, silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah, that began in 396 BC. That was a crucial year for Jerusalem because from after 396 BC, there was like a silence. There was no prophets. No prophets until John the Baptist. Can you imagine that? 400 years of silence. That's a long time, right? There was no living prophet for 400 years. And so 396, by then, the first part of the prophecy, the initial fulfillment of the prophecy was completed by 396 BC, okay? And so the prophecy and promise of Yahuwah was fulfilled. And so we also need to take heart because we too are remnants. 
according to Isaiah, right? The daughter of Zion, what would happen to it? It would become like Sodom and Gomorrah, but what did Yahuwah do? He left behind a small remnant. What is the promise of Yahuwah? He says to the small remnant, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And so this pertains to us. Why do we believe this pertains to us? Because of the details of the prophecy. It has multiple fulfillments, one of which is taking place right now. And we who belong to the very small remnant, we have a promise we can hold to. What is that? Yahuwah says, I will restore your judges as at the first, your counselors at the beginning. How so? We're going to be brought back to the laws of Yahuwah Abba that Moses taught and Yahushua HaMashiach also taught. Why? So that we too can be restored. And so we follow the pattern of restoration so that we can begin become again a city of righteousness, the faithful city. So if we are a city, what does that mean? We need to build the infrastructure too, right? But in our case, it's very different from during the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. But nevertheless, there are still things that we need to put in place so that we can efficiently do the work of worshiping Yahuwah Abba. And so let's follow the pattern. It begins with a remnant, and that's us. Do we have a prophecy, a promise? Yes, we just read the prophecy and promise. We have number two. What do we need to do? We need to pray. And this is what we are calling all members of the Assembly of Yahushua to do. We need to pray. We need to confess. We need to repent. And we need to request Yahuwah Abba that he builds the Assembly of Yahushua and that we will be able to accomplish the will of Allah. Let's pray, brethren. That is so important. Bible says, as part of the pattern to rebuild the infrastructure. Isn't this what we did? This is why we registered the assembly of Yahushua. This is part of the rebuilding of the infrastructure that we're going to use in worshiping Yahuwah. What else? We need to identify and gather the remnants. We have done that and we're continuing to do that. As Yahuwah Abba adds more of the remnant to be under our care. What else? We need to go back to Yahuwah's laws and commands. Have we done this? Are we presently doing this? Isn't this what we have been teaching for the past several months? We're going back. We're returning to the laws and commandments of Yahuwah Abba. What else? The the pattern says we need to also worship according to the appointed times. Aren't we not doing this? Aren't we planning already? to celebrate the festivals and the Sabbaths. And so we're following the pattern of restoration. Most of all, brethren, let us rely on the help of Yahuwah. Let us rely on the spirit and power of Yahuwah because he has promised us that we will be restored. And so what is the final word of Yahuwah Abba for the remnant, for us, before we go ahead and pray as a congregation today? Let's read one final message or passage. In Haggai, chapter 2, 2 down to 4, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelchiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel, says Yahuwah. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says Yahuwah. And work, for I am with you, says Yahuwah of hosts. What is the message of Yahuwah? For each and every one of us today represent a small remnant of the people of Allahim. Yahuwah says two things to us. What's number one? Be strong. Right? Because we have a lot of obstacles, a lot of opposition, a lot of enemies, a lot of persecutors. Yahuwah says, be strong. How can we be strong? Because Yahuwah is with us. What does it mean to be strong? What also does Yahuwah want us to do? He says, and work. We don't simply sit down and wait for Yahusha to return. No, we have work to do. 
We have to testify about Yahuwah, testify about, testify about Yahushua. We have work to do. And why must we be strong? Why must we work? The Bible says, for I am with you. And this is why the Bible says, fear not. Do not be afraid. Yahuwah is with us. And because he is with us, he can strengthen us. And because he will strengthen us, let's pray for it. Let's do the work. There's a reason why we're praying. Because it's promised by Yahuwah. But we have to do our part. What is that? We have to work. We have to do that part. We can't expect Yahuwah to do everything. He will strengthen us in the work. He will pour out his spirit in the work. But we have to do the actual work. And so we exhort all the members of the assembly of Yahushua, let's be united in the work of worshiping Abba and spreading the good news about Yahuwah and his son. Let's testify of Yahuwah and of Yahushua. Let us continue in worshiping Abba and his beloved son. Let us go ahead and stand and we shall pray. Almighty and merciful Allahim in heaven, Yahuwah, thank you so much for giving us the plan, the pattern that we need to follow so that we can fulfill your desires for your people. You are preparing us for the work of salvation and the work of establishing your kingdom here on earth. Help us, Father, to be your instruments. Use us in a powerful way. Help us to overcome mountains by relying upon your spirit not on our own ingenuity, not on our own resourcefulness, not on our own wisdom, but by your power and strength. Please, Father, be there for us when we call upon you because we need your strength. We promise we will work. Help us, Father, to be focused on this work, not to be distracted by the endeavors of men, but to be solely focused upon your kingdom so that when you will send your begotten son, you will remember us and we will be with you and with your son in leading the kingdom. Yahusha, our loving Mashiach, our true leader, our true shepherd and Mashiach, we follow you and listen to your voice. May you please strengthen us, help us to be loyal to you, help us to follow your lead as we prepare for your second advent. Father, bless your people throughout the world. Help us to understand your ways and your holy will. We ask and beg everything, loving Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.